You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. The reading today is from Matthew uh, 21 from verse 12. Jesus at the temple. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Thank you very much for that. Um, so, good morning, everybody. My name's Dave, and I'm going to, as Rebecca said, talk a bit about Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. It's quite a famous story. Um, we're going to be some slides up on there in a minute, and they're going to just help us understand a bit about the, the temple and where it was and how it was made up. Um, so, I'll put those up in just a minute. This is a, a famous story. We just, well, Lillian just read it in Matthew's Gospel. It's actually a story that's written in all four of the Gospels. Um, and in three of them, it's written in a pretty similar way. And then in John's Gospel, it's written um, differently, or at least it's differently in the, in the book. So in, Matthew, in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's written up at the sort of end of the book, or towards the end of the book. And it's in the sort of narrative that talks about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, and then he goes off to the temple, and it's in the run-up to Jesus death and, and resurrection and it's in that sort of story as Jesus is in Jerusalem over Passover um, so towards the end of Matthew Mark and Luke John's gospel this story is placed somewhere different it's actually right at the start of the book most the second thing that John's gospel says to us about Jesus is this story and so I'm going to come on and talk in a minute about why it's placed differently in John's but before I start all of that I think if you know this story, Jesus marches into the temple and ends up turning over the money changers' tables. We'll talk about what all that means in a minute. But he marches into the epicenter of Jewish culture, the epicenter of the Jewish religion in uh, Jerusalem, and starts turning tables over and knocking money about. It's this act of, symbolic act of revolution and subversiveness, and it's this big moment in Jesus' life. And yet in our Bibles, if you read the little heading above story it always says Jesus cleanses the temple and I always think that's a little bit hilarious it sounds like Jesus marched up to the temple and got his marigolds out and starts doing a, a bit of dusting around the temple when actually it's supposed to be this story of revolution a bit like the thing Nathan was talking about earlier with Shane Claiborne when he's going to come to speak how do we end up making these stories so dull when they're these signs of great revolution um I don't know about you but if you've Heard this story, I'm sure lots of you will have heard this story before. It can sometimes get written up a bit like this, that it's something to do with Jesus not really liking commerce and business going on in the temple courts. He didn't really like the fact that there were these businesses going on. You know, temples were supposed to be, the temple was supposed to be a place of 
piety and prayer and reflection and quiet contemplation and how could you possibly have that alongside business going on in the temple it sometimes gets written up as this almost like sacred you know divide thing you know we can't have secular stuff going on in our holy temple um, and Jesus was somehow making this point about how this needs to be our quiet space of prayer and reflection and contemplation I don't think it's actually about that. I don't think this is a, a, a story to us to say, you know, we've got to go and turn over the tables of the bread stand outside or we've got to kick the school out of this building because somehow we've merged sacred and secular together. I don't think when we were running a coffee shop in this space, Jesus would have been marching in to say, how dare you run business in, in, a, in a church space. I don't think that's what this story is about. So I've got three things that I do think it's about. So here you go. Hopefully you can see this picture. This is a sort of artist impression of what the temple might have looked like in Jerusalem. Um, and so it's a really grand building. This is the second temple, you know, the first temple was destroyed. And then this temple was rebuilt and lots of money poured into it. Um, so it would have been a really impressive building in, in Jerusalem. And you can see that sort of big courtyard around the edge of this, uh, this building. That's called the, the Court of the Gentiles. Um, Gentiles means everybody who's not Jewish. So it's basically the bit of this building that you can go into if you're foreign, if you're not Jewish. And then the main temple is this bit in, in the middle there. Um, that's the main temple. And you could only go inside that bit of the temple if you're Jewish. So that little rectangle in the middle, just keep your eye on that. This is a sort of sketch of that bit in the middle. And in the middle, that main bit of the temple was again split into several different bits. So you can see on the right-hand side, I hope you can, there's what's called um, Gate Beautiful, which is the steps you walked up to get into this bit of the temple. And then the first bit you could go into, if you were Jewish, was called the Court of Women. And basically, that was, the, that was as far as Jewish women could go in the temple. And then if you walked up the steps again in towards the middle you got into what was called the court of the Israelites. And that was the place you could go if you were Jewish and you were a Jewish man. And then you could go a bit further into what you can see is called the court of the priests if you were Jewish, a man and a priest um, in the court of the priests. And then finally, this bit that's in the middle here, it's called the Holy of Holies. Um, and that's the bit you could get to if you were a high priest. And there was um, a curtain, a veil in the middle of that. And the temple was the sort of manifestation on earth of God's presence. It was the place where the Jewish people got to interact with God. It was the place that summarized God's interaction with humanity on earth. And so behind the veil was this sacred space where God was. But I hope you can see that this... this um, picture of the temple is almost like a sort of filtration system it's like you could come into the outer courts if you were foreign you could come into the middle court if you're Jewish and now a Jewish woman if you were a Jewish man you could go a bit further so you could end up in the court of the Israelites if you were a Jewish priest you could go a bit further still and if you were a high priest you could get right into the middle there it was this symbol almost of the unaccess the exclusion from being able to access God you were only able to get to certain bits of this like only certain people who were the right type of person were actually able to get right to the epicenter of where God was in this system it was almost a filtration system to say some people but can come but only go so far Jesus was in Jerusalem um, during the Passover um, festival and during the Passover festival the Jews were 
more strict than ever, really, about thinking about their purity laws. So they were thinking about, if I'm going to go to the temple, and the point of going to the temple during Passover was to offer a sacrifice. The money changers, the tables that Jesus turned over, were the money changers. And the money changers had three jobs. They would probably be sitting in this outer court here in the, in the court of the Gentiles. And the money changers had three jobs. Job number one was you had to use temple shekels in the, in the temple. And so if you brought your foreign money with you, they would change your money and charge you, charge you um, a little extra on top of that to change your money for you so that you were spending in temple shekels, first thing. Second thing, you were there to sacrifice and therefore they would sell you doves and they would sell you things to sacrifice. And then the third thing is that the temple, because it was taking in all this foreign currency, was acting like you know, the Bank of England. It actually had you know, huge reserves of um, different currencies from all over the world and almost operated a bit like a bank. And was, some of the money changers were giving loans out to people and it was doing some financial transactions for people. And so during Passover, you were there to come and offer your sacrifice and you were worried about or at least concerned with, making sure that you are pure. You had to be pure to go to the temple. You had to go through all the Jewish purification rites to be able to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. So people would turn up to Jerusalem weeks in advance of going to the temple because they had to go through all the different purity rites in order to be able to go to the temple. It was quite a strict setup. You had to be pure to be there. And when you got there, there were these different sort of rungs of who was allowed to go where, depending on who you were. Let me just show you. You won't be able to quite see this picture. But that is a, a stone tablet on the left-hand side that um, I think is in a museum in Istanbul. But it's um, a stone that would have been hanging somewhere in the temple, and it describes to foreigners what they are and aren't allowed to do. So it's, it's in Greek, but it says, Let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. I mean, so they were taking this pretty seriously. There are two of these tablets. There's one in Jerusalem and one in Istanbul. They were taking the, the rules about where you could and couldn't go pretty seriously. And we know that because if you, um, there's a story in Acts um, where the disciples, so this is after Jesus has died and been resurrected, but the disciples are going into the temple and they enter through Gate Beautiful, the gate on the right, on the right hand side over there, and in the story says there are some disabled people that have been placed on the steps outside Great Beautiful to beg. Now, why, why were they there? Well, they were on the steps outside because they weren't allowed in any further. Um, so you can tell in the, in the stories of the Bible, there, it tells us quite clearly about this sort of system that operated around the temple. But um, it's true to say that over the years, the Jews had sometimes been a bit more flexible with this stuff and sometimes been a bit more strict about this stuff. They were in a period where they were being a bit more strict about it. But if you look back through the Old Testament, God is always saying to the Jewish people, you're supposed to be a blessing to the whole earth, to all of humanity. God's blessing when he talks to Abraham right at the start of the Bible is your, your lineage is to be a blessing to the entire earth. And Jesus, when he's in the temple, um, Lillian read a bit of it to us, quotes from Isaiah. If you read um, the version in Mark, it's slightly extended, the quote that he says. He says to them, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's a quote from Isaiah 56. 
And if you read some of the other lines in Isaiah 56, there's some other stuff in there. So here's Isaiah 56, verse 3. It says, Do not let the foreigner who is joined to the Lord say, Lord, you will surely separate me from his people. Do not let the foreigner who is joined to the Lord say, Lord, you will surely separate me from his people. Those verses in Isaiah are all about include, include, include. Everybody's in on this. Don't let the foreigner say um, they've been separated from God. And then right at the end of the bit that um, Lillian read to us in, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus marches in. He turns over the temp- tables. He's saying to the money changers who are almost operating like bouncers for people to be able to get in and out of this filtration system. He says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. These levels of exclusion, of access to God and God's love is not the way it's supposed to be. And he turns over the table, he smashes it up a bit. He says, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And then at the end, there are a couple of verses in that um, bit that was read to us that say, and after he'd done that, the lame and the blind came into the temple and Jesus healed them. And after he'd done that, the children came into the temple and they cried, Hosanna, this is the son of David. The point of that story is about Jesus saying this is an exclusionary system and is not how it's supposed to be. Everybody has access to God. And the lame and the blind came into the temple and the children came in and said, Hosanna, this is the son of David. My first point about this is, I think this is a story about inclusion. Jesus is saying this system seems to be set up by the establishment to keep people out, not um, get people to have access to God. It's about inclusion. My second thing is to say, well, we could look at those stories and say, well, weren't those ancient people daft? You know, we don't do that. Anybody can come into our church building. We're really inclusive, aren't we? So I think in our society, there are chronic exclusions going on. We've like hermetically sealed ourselves off from them a lot of the time. So like we don't notice them quite so much. And it might not be quite as apparent as a stone tablet like that. But there are chronic exclusions going on in our society. This is just as big a deal for us as it was for Jesus marching into the temple and doing that revolutionary act. Let me just give you two examples. I um, went and met with um, some, somebody in one of our communities um, a, a couple of weeks ago. And I met with somebody in one of our communities who was telling me about the exclusion they'd felt in their community. They were actually um, telling me a positive story about how they'd turned their life around a bit and how they were actually saying how thankful they were to find belonging in Oasis. But they told this story. um, This lady sat with me and she told a story of having got into really terrible debt because she was really struggling with her family to have enough money and ended up getting into debt and from people who were charging exorbitant amounts of money on the debt that she was in. And she said, I was really struggling. I was living in a house where there were just, I was crammed into this little house and there just wasn't enough space. And I had to argue with the council for months and months and years to try and get a bigger house. And then she took me on a walk around the neighborhood and she pointed out the swings and in the park that were all rusted up. And she talked about the big piece of grass area next to the park where um, the drug dealers took over each evening. And she said, the police don't even really seem to do anything about this. And we wandered around the neighbourhood a bit more. And she talked about the fact that the councils had stopped providing bins anymore, so fly-tipping was just happening all over this neighbourhood. And then ultimately walked to the the end of this estate, and there was a slightly posher estate that had been built more recently just down the road. And all the roads that went from her estate onto the next estate just stopped. 
they didn't join together. Because why would you want to impact the slightly posher, richer bit of the town with this not-so-nice bit of the town? And she said this gross exclusion was happening in society, and we live in a society that's prepared to just walk on past that. What's our equivalent in that context of throwing over the tables and saying it is not supposed to be like this? It's supposed to be equitable. It's supposed to be inclusive. Everybody's supposed to have access to God's love. What's our equivalent of that revolutionary subversive act that we've just read about? Or I was going to talk to you about the secure school. Steve did that notice. And he talked to us about the secure school. Let me show you this little picture. You probably won't be able to see this. But this is something that's often used in, in the media to talk about the school to prison line. And it's talking about exclusions from school. Once a child is permanently excluded from school in the UK, they are massively, massively more likely to end up in the custodial prison system and once you end up in the prison system it is really hard to get out of it as Steve described earlier. We know that um, in this system that you're massively more likely to end up in the criminal justice system um, if you've been permanently excluded from school and I was sitting with somebody last week, um, one of our teachers who was telling me that you know often being permanently excluded from school is because there's other stuff going on there's stuff going on at home or there's mental health crisis or people have often got other um, special educational needs that are unmet. And so there's often other stuff going on in life that means you're likely to be excluded from school. And she said to me, these days, in order to be able to get mental health support, you've got to be permanently excluded from two different secondary schools before you will even get picked up on the register of mental health support. Now, we know that this goes on in our society, that young people face this terrible slippery slope to the criminal justice system and don't do very much about it. There isn't enough support going on. There isn't enough mental health access. There isn't enough work going on in school to say, well, what does an alternative provision education system should it look like? What's our equivalent of turning over the tables in that context? Well, one thing is the secure school that Steve just talked about. That is us saying not just a symbolic act, but a practical one too. But like, how can we turn over the tables and say it should be different? And by the way, once you've got into the criminal justice system, stuff has gone wrong at that point, hasn't it? We've got to go back upstream and say, well, what should we be doing in our schools? What should we be saying to government about alternative provision education? What do we need to actually do about the mental health crisis going on for young people in our country? These exclusions happen in our society every bit as much as they were doing in that temple system. They might just be a bit less obvious to us on a day-to-day -day basis. We've got to do that revolutionary act. We've got to turn over the temple, turn over the tables. I talked to you about John's Gospel, and I told you that it was placed differently in John's Gospel. Like when you Google all of this, if you look at this story, some people say, oh, well, perhaps because John placed it in a different point in his story, maybe Jesus did this twice, it happened twice. I don't think that's true at all. John's Gospel is written completely differently to the other three Gospels. John's Gospel has got much more mystical language built into it, and John, John's, the writer of John's Gospel doesn't necessarily collect things together chronologically, so it's not like, let me tell you a story, this happened, this happened, and then this happened. The writer of John's Gospel collects stuff together based on themes. It collects stuff together and says, well, this stuff's going to make a point, and then this stuff's going to make a different point, and then this stuff's going to make a third point. This story is written up in chapter 1 to 12 of John's Gospel. 
And chapters 1 to 12 of John's Gospel are about the signs. Have you ever heard about the, the signs in John's Gospel? But they're basically seven miraculous events that the writer of John's Gospel um, tells us about in chapters 1 to 12. And in amongst them, there's some other really important stories too that aren't necessarily miraculous signs. This story sometimes gets written up as the eighth sign, but not often. There's, there's seven usually. Let me just tell you what some of the others are in chapters 1 to 12. So it starts with that story of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And then Jesus goes on to meet with somebody called Nicodemus and talks to Nicodemus about needing to be born again. And then Jesus goes off to meet a Samaritan woman at a well. And then Jesus heals a few people. He heals a disabled man at a pool and then he feeds the 5,000. And then he walks on water and then he heals a blind man and then ultimately in chapter 11 um, resurrects Lazarus from the dead. Now all of these stories are put together to make a point. They're there to make points about what Jesus' mission was in the world, what Jesus was here to do, what the Messiah was all about. Turning water into wine. It's the first thing that John's Gospel tells us about Jesus. Why does he tell us that? Jesus is at a wedding where they've already had an awful lot to drink and Jesus turns some water into more wine at the end of the wedding. Like It's Jesus declaring right at the start of the Bible, in, in that Gospel that this is going to be a party. This is big news. It's going to be exciting. This, Jesus is at a party. It's the first thing we're told about him in John's gospel then he goes to speak to Nicodemus and he says this is really important it's going to change all of life you're going to have to be born again you're going to have to take one headset off and put a different headset on this is not just like incorporate a few things into the way you've always done things it's start again turn around do something different big message he then meets a Samaritan woman at the well he heals a blind he heals a, um, a, a disabled person at a pool. Jesus is hanging out with all the wrong people. The message is, like, this isn't just for the sort of nobles and elite. This is going to be for all the people you think have been left out in society. And ultimately, he gets to Lazarus and resurrects Lazarus. The message there is, this is going to be even more powerful and bigger than death itself. So all of these stories are making big points. And then our story about turning the tables over is in amongst them. So John must have put it there to make a big point. It wasn't just something that Jesus happened to do, so I'll mention it. it you know, it's there to make a point. So what point was John trying to make? I think John's Gospel trying to make. I think there are two things. Here are the um, uh, temple shekels. So you had to go and change your money into temple shekels. Well, the first thing I think the point that was being trying to make was about justice. So the money changers were there, people being charged too much money. This wasn't about open access to God. This was about making a bit of money on you while you were in the temple. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, do you know we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s and 50s? Um, and the Dead Sea Scrolls write up stories about um, what they thought about Judaism at the time, around the time of Jesus. And they give us a really interesting insight into the Bible and to what was going on at the time. The Qumran community, which is where they were found, couldn't talk more vividly about how corrupt they thought the temple in, in Jerusalem was. They talk about wicked priests. There was a sense that this had all been taken over by the elite. This was the establishment. This wasn't a, a place of access to God. This was like, if you're the right type of person and can pay the right type of money, and we might give you a loan if you're poor. And I think the point that John's Gospel is trying to make was, Jesus was in there saying, this is inclusion, and by the way, this is about justice. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And then John's Gospel makes um, 
another profound point, I think. I think he's talking about who Jesus is. Just imagine this guy from Galilee, this guy, you know, like a carpenter's son, turning up in the epicenter of Judaism and just marching into the temple and taking over and saying, I'm here to tell you what this is all about. And by the way, I'm going to knock these tables. And by the way, I don't think this temple should even exist. You know, that is unbelievably provocative, isn't it? Jesus is marching into the temple, taking authority. And at the end of the story in John's gospel, after he's done this, the Jews come to him and say, why on earth are you allowed to do this? Like, why have you got authority to march in here and do this in, in the temple? And Jesus says this to them. He says, my house... Um, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. What on earth is he saying? They say, well, it took us you know, hundreds of years to build this temple. What are you talking about? You're going to build it again in three days. Jesus is foretelling his death and resurrection. Jesus is pretty much saying to them, I'm the temple. Like, this is going to go. This is not the right stuff. I am the temple. I am the Messiah. Like, unbelievably provocative stuff. And in Matthew's gospel, the children march in and say, Hosanna, this is the son of David. They're saying, Hosanna, this is the Messiah. Again, to do that right in the epicenter of Judaism is unbelievably provocative. The disciples would have been in there with him. They would have been in there while he's turning the tables over. And they'll have thought, yes, we knew the Messiah was coming. We knew there was going to be this restoration of the temple. This is it. This is the moment. We're going to take over now. We, you know, we're back. We're going to kick out the Romans. We, you know, this is the moment where the Messiah really takes the sword to everybody and really takes over. You know, all Jesus had to do, this is a picture of Jerusalem. You really won't be able to see this. But that's the temple over there. And here are all the palaces over here. All Jesus needed to do was, after he turned the tables over and made a fuss with the Jewish leaders, march out and go and do the same thing in the palace. The Messiah was here to take over. And he didn't do that. He came out of the temple and walked off to a place called Bethany, which is a couple of miles outside the city. And his disciples must have thought, what on earth has happened? Like, this was the moment. We were just about to do it. And he seems to have bottled it. He seems to have disappeared off to Bethany. We've got an interesting relationship, I think, with a couple of the character disciples, but particularly with Judas. Um, you know, like if you're a good evangelical, you need the death and resurrection of Jesus to make all of this make sense. And in order to get there, Judas actually has to betray Jesus. So, like, we need Jesus to do that thing. In fact, Jesus, Jesus tells him to go and do that thing in order that the death and resurrection of Jesus happens. And then we vilify Judas for having done it. We, like, got this sort of love-hate relationship with Judas. Did he do the thing that he needed to or... Was he this terrible person that was betraying Jesus? We don't know quite what to make of him. I wonder whether all of the disciples, Judas included, had got back to Bethany and were thinking, the Messiah was here and he almost did it, but bottled it. Um, we seem to be sitting in Bethany now, not taking over. That was the point. We were supposed to be kicking out the Romans. What about Judas? Perhaps he thought, well, this is the Messiah. I know he's the Messiah. The Messiah can't die. I'm going to set up a conflict so that he has to deal with this. I'm going to go and dob him into the authorities. I'm going to go and, don't, you know, it would be fine because he's the Messiah. I'm going to go and make sure that Jesus has this conflict. I'm going to push him in the right direction, make sure he actually takes and does the stuff we're expecting the Messiah to do. So Judas goes off and betrays Jesus, and it doesn't go the way he's expecting. Jesus gets arrested 
Jesus gets tortured, Jesus gets killed on a cross. But Judas doesn't display the characteristics of some sort of spy in the camp that was always going to betray Jesus. Like the moment he's arrested, he's going to plead for Jesus' release. He gives back all the money he was given for betraying him. And ultimately, after Jesus dies, Judas hangs himself. Like, that doesn't seem like the person who was always there to sort of trip Jesus up and betray him. It seems like somebody that thought this was going to go differently to the way he expected. And I tell you that story because I think Jesus is in the temple claiming to be the Messiah, taking this authority, but then he says to his disciples, it's not going to go the way you expect. It's going to be different to the way you expect. This is going to be a path of sacrificial love, not a path of getting my sword out and killing everybody to take over. No wonder in John's gospel, the three first things you find out about Jesus are, first of all, it's going to be a party. Secondly, this is all about inclusion and justice. And then when he's with Nicodemus, thirdly, you're going to have to look at this a different way. It's not going to be the way you expect. You're going to need to be born again. This is going to be different to the way it's expected. First three key messages of John seem fundamentally important to me. So, coming in to finish. I think this story is about inclusion. I think this story is about justice. And I think this story is about the democratization of God's love. Jesus is saying, I am now the temple, not this system that excluded people. Jesus is saying, you can access God through me. And ultimately, Paul goes on to say, actually, we are all the temple. We all get to access God. God is with us everywhere. Everybody has got access to the love of God. So if it's about inclusion, justice, and the democratization of God's love, like what do we need to do in our society to turn over the tables to make sure that people in this community, in our city, in our country, genuinely know that there aren't places you can go and places you can't go. There isn't a hierarchy. How do we make sure in this community that justice is a real thing, that we aren't excluding kids from schools and ending up sending them on that pathway that I talked about? And how do we make sure that everybody in this community knows that the love of God is available to absolutely everybody? I think that's our task together, and I think that's what this story is really about. So I'm going to stop there and hand back to Rebecca. Rebecca.